Let's stand again. Let's open our Bibles to Luke. Luke chapter one, Luke chapter one, verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, uh, having uh, followed these things closely, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have, have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you'd help us to walk through this wisely and perfectly tonight. And let us grow in our faith in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. When, when you read the book of Luke, you read the Bible, especially the Gospels, you've got to ask yourself, okay, where did these stories come from? And Luke is very clear with us, and I want to remind you of that. These stories came from eyewitness accounts. These are people who were there. The book of Luke is... is prevalent in the church very early on in church days. In fact, from the writings of, uh, of, of, the found, as of many of the father, early fathers of the church that we have copies of, if we didn't have a complete copy of the book of Luke, we could compile it out of their writings, out, out of their quotations from uh, the book of Luke. That should build our faith to look at these stories and say these are stories told by people who were there, it was written at a time that people were still alive, uh, that, that, that knew Jesus and were around, and nobody refuted these stories. What is the purpose of the book? Certainty of faith. That we have a foundation uh, for our faith. Now, Luke did not write this, in chron- this book in chronological order. Uh, basically, he deals with pre-ministry, Jesus' birth until baptism. Then he deals with early ministry. He deals with latter ministry. And he deals with last days. And many of those events, as you get towards the last days, many of those are more chronological. But many of the early ministry, latter ministry events are all mixed together. He's not, he's not worried about a, chron, a chronological story. He's worried about certainty of faith. So he's building an argument for certainty of faith. Uh, there are many truths that you can get out of, all, out, of, out of any scripture. However, when you understand the pu- purpose of the book, it gives you insight. So as you, as you understand why Luke was written, when you read Luke, you need to read it and, and, and stop if you get to a story, especially that may be a little confusing or you don't understand completely. Say, wait a second, why did he write this? He wrote this to build our faith. He wrote this so we could be certain of faith. And he wrote this using eyewitness accounts of it. There's a reason this story's here. It's here to build uh, my faith. That helps me get insight as I read the book if I understand what the purpose of it is. So Luke as you read each passage, how he, you ask yourself, how is he building certainty of faith? So he sets this up with the understanding the stories come from eyewitnesses. Now, before we take a look at these events in Luke chapter 5, I want to look at one action of Jesus that you will find throughout all of the Gospels. 
In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, this first event, this healing has just taken place. And in verse 16, it says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And and I, I think one of the things that always stands out to me when I read about Jesus going to pray is if he felt compelled to go pray, how much more do I should I feel compelled to go pray? Uh, Jesus is unlike us in that he is fully God and fully man. We've talked about, in the, in, the, in the weeks gone by, we've talked about the fact that Jesus doesn't have a broken nature like we have a broken nature. His temptation comes from the outside. His temptation comes to appeals, much like Adam and Eve's original temptation. It's this appeal to him. So you look at the three major temptations in Luke, and they're all appealing to Jesus in the flesh to reject the right place of the Father in his life. And he's always using the word to defend and to say, I'm not going to do that. But he's fully God. He's just laid aside that role. He's not exercising that. He could have. He could have done anything. But he always does things because the Father, through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Father. Now, we don't know what all that meant other than that he only did what the Father told him. He was obedient to the Father. In prayer, Jesus found solace. In prayer, he found encouragement. In, fa- in prayer, he found direction in the presence of the Father, and we will too. We'll find comfort, we'll find encouragement, we'll find strength, we find direction, and we enter into the spiritual world when we pray. So if Jesus found prayer powerful and worthwhile, then we need to look and learn from him and learn how to pray. And I'm I'm just telling you, learning how to pray takes some effort. Uh, part, part of what we have to do is look at the things Jesus told us about prayer, but also begin to see, let, let, the, let Jesus teach us how to see in the spiritual realm of things and how to understand ourselves. So we, we come before God. What does he teach us to do? He teaches us to recognize the name of God and honor the name of God, seeing what God does in our life. He tells us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're submitting and recognize that God's will is better than ours. And we don't understand it. He knows the beginning from the end. We're praying as we pray. We pray, God, meet my daily needs. And so we present our needs. We pray in resistance. We pray that we would forgive people as that God will forgive us as we forgive people. So we're asking for purity of heart, and we're asking for him to deliver us from the enemy. This is, uh, this is part of the way we pray. As you go through the Psalms, as you read the Psalms, if you'll do that, and you'll look at the Psalms and ask yourself a couple of questions. Uh, I like to look at the Psalms and say, what are the promises that are in this Psalm of how God is going to take care of me? What are the prayers in this Psalm 
that I can pray and use as a guide in prayer to say, okay, God, this is what others ask for. This is what I'm asking for. What, is, uh, what are the worship moments in the psalm that I can use and take and say, this is how I should worship him for his greatness? And so you begin to read through that, the psalm. This is why the psalms are so important to us. Then when you begin to see the conflict that's in the psalm, and we recognize we talked a few weeks ago that the conflict that we face is centered in this spiritual battle that we are in. And we begin to see that there's spiritual forces at work. They're trying to work in our children's lives. They're trying to work in our marriages. And we need to pray against them and ask God to deliver us from them. So it takes effort for us to work through that. And it takes time for us to work through that. But it's very, very worthwhile for us too. And and today we're praying every night because we believe America is in great conflict, great division, and we need to be praying for the revelation of God. We have set aside godly principles, and they seem to be getting set aside more and more and embracing man's wisdom, which is very limited, and we need the revelation of God to move in our country today. Okay. In, in chapter 5, several things happen. Uh, the first thing that really happens is that, that Luke shows us once again, and you'll see this uh, many times, story after story, in all the Gospels, about Jesus' power over our bodies. That he has the ability to heal the sick, just like he created us. And, and the eyewitness stories are stories of mind-blowing power. And they're meant to build our faith, one, in who he was and who he is and what he did then and what he can do now. So the first story that we see is a story of leprosy. Leprosy was a terrible disease, and at its worst, it could be very contagious. And because of how contagious that it was, uh, the law demanded, the Old Testament law demanded, that the person who had leprosy had to be isolated from the community for the safety of others. Now, general leprosy could fit into several categories. Some of the people would naturally get better and they were able to come back to the priest and show the priest that they were better and they would be welcomed back into the community. Some forms were progressive unto death. There was no cure for them. It would eat away at the extremities of their hands and their feet and their face. And when a person was fully in this, it was a pretty grotesque picture of what this disease uh, had done in this person's life. So this man comes to Jesus in a town. He's not supposed to be there. Uh, but, you know, what does he have to lose? You know, what, what are they going to do to him? He comes into the town. He's covered with leprosy. The Bible says covered with it. 
he, he's got it bad. He doesn't have a little touch. He's covered with leprosy. And he says this question, if you are willing, you can heal, you can heal me. And Jesus does what you're not supposed to do. He touches him and heals him. And he's set free. Now, Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody this. Now, Jesus says that because he doesn't want there to be, you know, too big of a rush on him at that time. And he's setting himself up for the rest of his ministry. But he says to him, go show yourself to the priest. He's telling him, fulfill the law. But he also has a purpose in sending him to the priest. And in this purpose of sending him to the priest, we see one of the main reasons that God heals. God doesn't, this is an interesting thing if you read through the Bible. We, we want God to heal us so we feel better. God likes to heal us so his name is glorified. He wants to glorify his name. And so he says, Go show yourself to the priest. Why? He wanted the priest to see. He wanted him to tell the priest. He wanted the priest to see that he had the power to heal. He's going to leave us without excuse. So he wants them to get it. Now he moves to the second story, Luke does. And the second story is of this paralyzed man. We don't know how he got paralyzed. We don't know how long he was paralyzed. But some of his buddies bring him to Jesus, try to get him to Jesus because they have heard that he heals people. This guy with leprosy, he didn't obey Jesus. He told everybody. He went out and talked to everybody. I, mean, how, I, I guess you kind of have to say, how could he not when he saw people who knew him Wow, what happened to you? You're better. Well, I got healed. How'd that happen? Well, this guy over here went to Jesus. I, I believed he was willing. So now these guys have, have heard this, and, and they, they, they can't get to him. They, they can't get to Jesus. The crowd's too big. So they, they, they get up on the roof of this house, much different than our roofs today. They, they're not tearing through shingles. They remove some stuff. And they lower him in before Jesus. It's a great story of faithful determination. It's a great story of pursuing God. There's a lot of lessons that you can learn in this story that God is embedded in the story. But remember, the, the fundamental reason he gave us this story is to build our certainty of faith in who Jesus is. And the, the key part of this story is this, that Jesus doesn't heal him right off. Instead, Jesus looks at him and sees his faith and says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus doing this is a claim that he is the Son of God. Only God can forgive sin. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers that are there, teachers of the law, the scribes that are there, uh, they, they hear this and they just, you know, go ballistic because he's now claiming to be God. 
And uh, they say among themselves, you know, who does he think he is? Uh, making that kind of a statement. Uh, and, and Jesus finally looks at him and he says, look, I know what you're thinking. Uh, to show you, this is a great verse for us, to show you that I have the power to forgive sin. We begin to see another reason why God heals. To show you that I have the power to forgive sin, that I can do this, he says, uh, he says, I'm going to heal this guy. Jesus did all this on purpose. So in verse 22 it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now, the reality of that question is this. For sins to really be forgiven is harder. Uh, it's easier to say because nobody, nobody knows that it didn't, did or didn't happen. It's just you and him know it. But he says, which is easier to say? You think I can't? You think I can't forgive sin? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Which is easier? And, but, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Isn't that good news for us? He has the authority to forgive sins. Your sin, he has authority to forgive it. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man does. It's a revelation of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, to be God incarnate upon this earth, shown in his words and his actions. He drew that line purposely so that the Pharisees would have to deal with it. They're going to now have to deal with this idea that he told this guy to rise and walk, but he also told him that his sin was forgiven. And the conflict of that is going to run through the whole story with the Pharisees. And we'll get to why here in just a couple of minutes. So Jesus will, uh, he can forgive, he will forgive those who come to him humbly and with faith. That's a great thing. We don't get saved because, you know, we did so many good things. We get saved, we get delivered because we come to him in faith. Now, the next part of the story is in Luke chapter 5 is he turns to our self-righteousness. Luke tells two stories to show the unique attitude of Jesus towards men, towards mankind. One of the weaknesses of religion is that it can produce self-righteousness that separates us and divides us. Now notice I said religion. When you begin to do things religiously and you begin to see yourself religiously and the way you dress is more religious than the way other people dress and the way you talk and act is more religious than the way other people talk or act or you know you have some form of success in this world because God has blessed you it becomes very easy to see somebody who doesn't dress right doesn't act right doesn't live exactly the way they should doesn't dress the way that they should and instead of us being merciful and kind and loving and patient what do we become 
we become self-righteous. Years ago, I remember when uh, uh, a lot of, back in the Jesus People movement days, uh, a number of young men and young women began to come into our church. And boy, back in those days, I mean, I, I, I can wear, you know, kind of jeans tonight. You can wear jeans tonight because of the Jesus people movement. You understand that, don't you? That didn't happen before the Jesus people movement. You weren't allowed, you, you, you dressed up to go to church. I thank God all the time for the Jesus people movement. Because these kids that came in, they didn't know. They didn't, you know, they, they were just trying to figure out who God was. They didn't know they had to dress a certain way or cut their hair a certain way or do anything a certain way. And I remember they came into, into our church, and they were there, and there was a kid with really long hair, and, and I mean, a guy with really long hair, and one of the, some person came up to my dad and said, what are you going to do about that? And dad said, about what? About what? Well, that, that, that guy with his long hair. Dad said, nothing. I'm not going to worry about it at all. Well, don't you think you should? No. I think what we should worry about is him getting saved. And if when he gets saved, if God wants him to cut his hair, he will. And if he doesn't, that's okay too. Because see, what we do is we begin to formalize, you know, what is righteous in our mind. And many, many times it's traditional instead of real. While God wants to change our hearts... You know, we begin to worry about the outward appearance of whether, that's really, whether it's really been changed or not. So Jesus, uh, Jesus, first he comes to the story of Levi. Now, we all know Levi. Levi is Matthew. He would write the book of Matthew. But Levi was, at this point in time, a tax collector. And as we talked about this, remember, tax collectors were seen as traitors they were seen as worse than sinners. You didn't want to, sp- you, you know, you, you, you despise them. And what does Jesus do? Instead of rebuking him for being a tax collector, instead of shunning him, instead of treating him like all the religious people do, Jesus tells him, uh, you know, come follow me. And they end up going to Levi's house and G and, and Levi throws a party for Jesus invites all of his friends probably a lot of uh, tax collectors there and a lot of sinners that were there and and the Pharisees who worry about appearance and how they appear and things they are appalled that he would go there they're just how can how can a righteous man go be with these kind of people And in verse 31, it says, Jesus answered them. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What was he saying? I'm not denying that these people aren't holy. I'm not not telling you they're holy. I'm not telling you they're not, some of them crooks. I'm not telling you they're not doing the wrong things. That's why I'm with them. I'm with them because they need a physician. He says, so, they have, he said, the, the well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is a, a, a great story for us, even though it's a little tricky, because this whole thing of, uh, of getting so, so, so righteous that we can't hang out with people 
who are sinners uh, is kind of a, a conundrum for us. I mean, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you, as, as a parent, when my kids were growing up, I, I wasn't going to send them to parties where I knew wrong things were happening. If I knew wrong things were happening, they weren't going there. But I have people invite me to places where there's all kinds of things I don't agree with, and I, I still go. I don't, I don't participate in those things. And, and that's a real key. You can't go into those places. You can't walk into those places. And uh, uh, if you're, if you're going to be tempted. I, I had a guy that, that had done some work for us, and he and I kind of hit it off. And he invited me to go out to eat with him and a bunch of his buddies. And we went over to uh, Osaka. And so, you know, at Osaka, you have this you know, table. They cook all the food for you. And we're there. And they're, you know, I'm just, you know, they're, they're all drinking and there's beer bottles all over the place. And I've got my Pepsi, you know. And at one point in time, they all got up and went someplace. And I'm sitting at this table all by myself with about 15 beers all around me. <laughs> you know. And I'm like, boy, somebody came in here, they'd think I was a, had a real problem. You know, now you can do that if you're not, if, if you're, Jesus, what, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, is, Jesus had a purpose for being there. He didn't just go to hang out with them. He didn't go just to party with them. He didn't go just to be a, one of the guys. You know, he, he was on duty. He went to call sinners to repentance. And at the end of the day, what's, what are we going to see? Matthew, Levi, becomes a disciple. If I just go to hang out and be one of the guys, that's, I think that's a problem. But when I go and understand, I'm, I'm hanging out with these guys, these people, because I'm going to be a witness to them. I'm going to share faith with them. I'm going to, you know, just like when, 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 when we're sitting at this table with those guys, I'm looking saying, okay, hey, can I pray before we eat? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a preacher, right, yeah, well, let's pray. That's okay, you know. What are we trying to do? We're trying to point him towards the fullness of Christ. And, and, I, and so I just want, to, want you to catch, his attitude towards them was not a, one of shunning. His attitude was, I'm going to pull you close, but I'm not going to pull you close to tolerate you. I'm not going to pull you close to... Uh, uh, to, you know, just to hang out with you. I'm pulling you close because I'm reaching out to the lost. Uh, so we, we have this question. Do we shun them because we are uncomfortable with what they do? Look at verse 32. He says, why is Jesus at the party? He's at the party to call people to repentance. Now, I, I, would, I would bet we have no indication of how that conversation went but I would bet Jesus wasn't just getting up and screaming and yelling and rebuking them. He was loving them and speaking to them. Jesus' attitude towards sinners is different than other religious leaders. He's loving. He's patient. He's kind. He's relational. But listen, he's never tolerant. He's not assuring. He's not telling them they're okay. He's calling them to repentance. 
You may find yourself in places where things, you get invited to things. And you're like, well, if I go there, somebody's going to try to get me to do this, or try, to, try to suck me into this conversation or that conversation. You can't go if you can't say, listen, why, I'm going to go here and I'm going to be a witness for who Jesus is. Which means I'm not going to get sucked into those things. I'm not going to get called into that. So, Jesus' attitude towards the sinner is one of loving patience, but of calling to repentance. Some of you may run into that in the, in the homes, that, in the families that you're in, where you have families that are far from God. It's just so important that you walk into that place with a sense of purpose when you walk in the door. Not a purpose of, you know, condemning, but a purpose of loving and serving and showing the light of the gospel and at times telling people what you believe but not getting in big fights and arguing. If all it is is an argument, it's not going to win anything. You want the penetrating power of the Spirit to move through your life. Now, the second thing that happens in this is the Pharisees want to know why uh, the disciples don't fast. It's a call to fasting. Uh, the Bible teaches us that there is power in fasting, that God honors fasting, that when we deny our flesh because we want to do something see something happen in the spiritual. That God honors that because we are recognizing the spiritual, we recognize the power of God. Now, it can be done for the wrong reason. Uh, the chief reason that fasting can be wrong is when you do it to try to get honor for yourself. And Jesus says, that's, that's no good. It can be done at the wrong time. Jesus was with them and he said, listen, uh, as, long as, the, as long as I'm with them, they're not going to fast. He said, but the day's coming when I'm going to be taken from them. I'm going to be taken. He's really specifically talking about when he goes to be crucified and when he's in the grave. And he said, they're going to fast then. They're going to fast then. Fasting helps us focus on the issue. It's the denial of self for higher purpose. First two weeks of February, uh, we're going to have a, you know, two weeks where we ask the church to really pray with us for awakening in the church and awakening in our nation. And we're going to ask you to fast. Now, if you've never fasted before, you want to be careful what you do because it's a spiritual battle when you begin to fast. But he here's what happens when you're fasting. And it may be... Uh, uh, a complete fast where you say, okay, for 24 hours or 48 hours or a week or whatever, I'm not doing anything but drinking water. Well, let me tell you, you're going to be, your attention to your body wanting food is going to become very prevalent in your, in, your, in, your, in your consciousness. And when you take that and you turn it and you say, I am conscious that I am hungry and I want food, but I want this more. God, I want this more. There's power 
Bible tells us there's power in that fasting. It may be that you say, I'm going to set something I love aside for a time. And you set something you love aside for a time. You don't stop loving it. You don't stop wanting it. You're drawn to it. But now when you're drawn to it, you're reminded, God, I've laid this down because I want you to move. And God has ordained, just like when I lift my voice and pray to him, when I fast something, he hears that and he sees that and he honors that. And Jesus tells him the day of fasting will come. It's a denial of ourself for a higher purpose. If we want to see strongholds destroyed, we have to fast. We need to fast. Fasting is spiritually powerful. So let me repeat this. We've said this many times, but let me repeat it. If there's something that is outside the will of God and there seems to be no, there, there, there's apparently no way to move it, you've got a stronghold you're dealing with. You've got somebody who should have eyes opened. They should be aware of God. They should love God. There's no reason. They haven't had something happen uh, that, that's, that's bad. Uh, there's a spiritual stronghold going on there. Uh, I'll tell you another place where there's a spiritual stronghold. You got Johnny, who's now an adult, and, uh, and, and he's just livid and mad at the church. And you get talking to him, Johnny, why are you mad at the church? Well, you know, when I was in the youth group, uh, the youth pastor wasn't, he, he, he wasn't nice. But really, what did he do? Well, you know, there was this, this, you begin to dig down into it and you find out, well, there was this girl that I was hitting on all the time. He told me to leave her alone. And that just made me mad. Well, what should the youth pastor do? To let some guy run around acting in unbecoming ways, the young ladies in the group, or she sit with him and go, listen, you can't do this anymore. Now, sometimes the weakness we have as parents is we become so defensive of our kids that we actually think that what is natural, correct, correction is actually abuse when it's really just natural correction that should happen. And when we begin to build that into the life, oh, yeah, you were so mistreated. And st- I'll tell you this. My, my, dad used to, my dad always told me, son, if you get in trouble at school uh, and you did it, just take it. You don't want me to come down there if you did it. And I, I remember one or two times in, in, where, where I hadn't done it, and I was in big trouble, and I hadn't done it. And I remember talking to Dad, I didn't do this. I wasn't a part of it. I wasn't even in the room. Didn't ha- I wasn't there, but somehow I got drug into it. And he'd say, okay, I'll go down there and talk to him. I said, uh, he said, but he'd always look at me and say, now, I better not get down there and find something else out. There better not be another part of this story that you didn't tell me. Because, and what was he saying? If I get down there and you're really guilty 
you're not just going to get it from them, you're going to get it from me. So I, but I'd learned, I'd learned really, if I did it, just take the lumps and go on. Now, if you don't do that, if, if, if at that moment, if in those moments when, you're, when your child is guilty or you're guilty and, and, and you really did it, that you're mad over the way they handled you or the way they treated you, if you defend that, you open yourself up for a stronghold of bitterness. You open your kid up for a stronghold of bitterness. When instead we need to be looking and say, you know what? If you behaved yourself, that wouldn't happen. If, if you acted right, that wouldn't happen. And, and so we have to be aware of these strongholds. Now, these strongholds become powerful in us because they wrap us up and they, they, they begin to form our thinking. And so here's one of, the, one of the, the typical signs of a stronghold is it's really unreasonable. It's really defensive and unreasonable. That person can't see their own fault in what happened. That's a stronghold of the enemy. So there's a lot of signs of strongholds. Just like I tell parents, listen, you say my, my child has a stronghold, uh, but you know that parent was abusive to the kid. Well, if you're abusive... You're setting them up for a stronghold. And until you repent of that abusiveness, until you fix that fault that you had, you're never going to be able to deal with the stronghold. So part of what happens when we begin to fast is God reveals to us, if we're a part of it, tells us what we need to change. But then God begins to saturate the truth into that thing and destroy it. So when Jesus says, listen, if you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, uh, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it will throw itself into the sea. Listen, he's not talking about changing the geography of the nation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual powers that are so strong that they seem immovable, that we have the power to speak to. And many times that takes fasting for us to combat that stronghold. Now, is that helpful? All right. Now, let's look at these last few verses of teaching that kind of sum this whole thing up. So he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new one. The new one gets ruined. And the piece from the new will not match the old. So it's just, it's just one, it's, you just don't do that. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And so we'll stop there for a second. So what he's saying to us, he, he's talking to uh, he's talking in the first verse about a new garment. He said, listen, you can't take this teaching that I'm giving you and just sew it on to your old faith. It's not going to look right. It's not going to be right. Uh, it's just going to ruin the new. It's not going to be powerful. You've got to lay down the old and pick up the new. He says, now listen. Uh, you get, they would have all known this. You don't put new wine 
into, into old wineskins. That new wine's going to ferment, it's going to grow, there's going to be things that happen in it, and the old wineskins have gotten old, they've gotten tight, uh, they've stretched as far as they can, it's just going to burst that old wineskin. No, you've got to put new wine into new wineskins. And what he's telling them in this passage is, listen, your traditions, uh, they're not going to work out. You've got to throw them, you've got to pick up the new in this. He was transforming this religious relationship with God. He's not going to pour his spirit into us. And if he, we ask him to pour that spirit into us and we try to remain religiously bound to traditions and stuff, it's not going to fit. It's going to, it's going to break. So we always have to watch this whole aspect. That's what we talked about this a minute ago. We have to watch this aspect of our traditions and make sure that our traditions are not holding us back from the new wine of life in Christ being in our life. So we don't want to put those things. So he's, he's talking to them about, hey, if you want to follow me, this is, the, the Pharisees got this. They knew he was speaking a parable about them and about the old way of doing things and calling people uh, to a new way. He goes on and says, and no one after drinking the old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. And what he's saying here, that, that can seem a little tricky, but what he's saying here is we get so comfortable in our traditions and our religion that to have the freedom that we get in the new wine, to have the life that we get in the new wine, that our peace doesn't come for instance, from checking off the boxes this week. I went to church, I read my Bible every day, and I prayed a couple of times. I've stopped, I didn't curse at all this week. Boy, I've checked all these boxes off, so I must be right with God. That we chuck all of that and say, no, I need the presence of God in my life. It's the presence of God in my life that is going to be evidence that I am right with God. I'm going to seek his presence, find my joy in his presence. I'm going to find my joy in his strength. I'm going to find my joy in him. He said, it becomes very easy for you to say, you know what? That's a little harder. That's a little harder to comprehend. I like the old way better. I like the old way better, so I'm just going to revert. The old wine tastes better. And what he's saying is, no, it's not. It's not better. What's better is the new wine. And, he's, and, and Luke is giving us this whole example of this new wine that we're supposed to embrace where we love people even when they're sinners, where we believe God that God can heal us spiritually, that Jesus can forgive our sin. We don't have to go through rituals to get our sin forgiven. We don't have to sacrifice lambs. We don't have to do all the religious stuff to get our sins forgiven. That Jesus can just simply look at us and say, your sins are forgiven. And he says, we're supposed to embrace this, grab a hold of this, live in this, and be a righteous people and follow after him with faith. And when we do that, we can rest in our salvation. We can see the power of God that comes in fasting and prayer. 
We can do it for the right reasons, not to get glory for ourselves, but because we want to see breakthrough in our world. And we want to see God move, and he will, when we, when we let the new wine come into our lives. And we are new enough that we can grow with it. Amen? Amen. That's chapter 5. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we, we just ask that uh, you would let all the truth in this come to light and life in our lives. If we are holding on to old wineskins, uh, Father, as old wineskins, holding on to old things that we need to let go of, let us, let us know it and see it. And Father, let us just walk in the fullness of your will. Father, help us to be able to be patient, friendly, kind, loving, uh, to sinners without being influenced, without, uh, Father, changing our moral code, without changing our truth. Let us always be calling people to truth through the loving power of your Spirit in us. And, Lord, for those who need healing, let us remember that you are the great healer. Touch us and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in the name of the Lord. And if you need some of those.